I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. In the beginning, the end. It's a story, but that's why I'm here, to tell you stories. So where to start? When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood, like a house in a whirlwind or, or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids, and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all, when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. My guest is Benjamin Teitelbaum, He's a professor of ethnomusicology and former head of the Nordic Studies Department at the University of Colorado at Boulder. He's been following and writing about the far right for nearly a decade, and his new book is War for Eternity, Inside Steve Bannon's Far-Right Circle of Global Power Brokers. Now, first off, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this book. I was a little leery because of the subject, but once I started reading it, I just couldn't put it down. I found it utterly fascinating. That's fantastic to hear. Of course, I think it's interesting, too. It's disturbing. Yes. <laughs> um, but it's relevant, I hope, and consequential. I think so, and, and that's what we're going to get into. At the beginning of the book, you say that you're an ethnographer, not a journalist. What's the distinction there, and how did that relate to the way you approached this project? Typically, an ethnographer is someone who spends an extended period of time following, living, interacting with, speaking to people. Historically, that's been people within a discrete cultural group in some way, in a place. And it is an exercise that initially attempted to teach an outsider how to view the world through the eyes of the people that she or he is studying. And its primary goal in that sense, you could say, is one of empathy. It is to see the world through others' eyes. And ethnography also leads into writing about culture. That's, that's really what the, what the word itself means, is that you produce documents, texts, and studies that explain how culture comes into being, how it works, and how it shapes our understanding of meaning. Now, all of that 
can exist in journalism, but typically it doesn't. Journalism aspires toward a different set of values, and sometimes it's just a matter of of emphasis um, and a different set of products as well. Journalists strive, I think, to maintain objectivity. They strive to, you know, expose facts, to report facts correctly and intelligibly, but there's slightly less emphasis on that depth of empathy, let's say, even though that can appear in journalism, too. And more, I think, on reporting, you can probably hear as I'm starting to waffle a little bit in my distinctions, that there's there's a fuzzy boundary between these two entities. And in terms of methodology, though, journalists also tend to spend less time with the people that they study. They tend to be less invested in forming relationships with them. And it, it should come as no surprise, especially in the realm of politics and political reporting, that journalistic writing tends to be much more confrontational with the subjects of study as opposed to ethnography, which in many cases is, is even, you know, some scholars have called on ethnographers explicitly to support the people who they study, saying that that also is integral to the work that we do. So this is a long answer to your question, but I do find myself, you know, in this study not quite being in either place, even though ethnography is my standard practice as a scholar. So it seemed to me in this book that your primary approach was direct interviews with your subjects, and you primarily focused on Steve Bannon, Alexander Dugan, and Olavo de Carvalho. And those three characters, they share this obscure philosophy that's called traditionalism, and they each rose to a very high influential level amongst some very major political players on the global stage, you know, Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin, and Jair Bolsonaro, all pretty much at the same time, which is even more unusual because these traditionalists, or traditionally the traditionalists stayed out of politics until now. And in a way, this whole thing sort of sounds like the makings of a kind of worldwide conspiracy for a a Jean Lacare novel or a James Bond movie. Although it's very uh, yeah. real. Yes, it is. I mean, where we, see, where we see that it is not a piece of fiction is in sort of the malfunctioning of it. Right. I um, mean, the messiness of it and the fact that it's not well-coordinated. But yes, what this book, what this study turned into, I didn't intend it to be this way, was essentially a tracing of this historical anomaly where you have world leaders, you know, in, in powerful hotspots, geopolitically influential countries, all having a traditionalist close to them, someone following this obscure philosophy that that you just mentioned. And, you know, the the figures themselves didn't coordinate this with each other. Not all of them get along. But something about this historical moment, and this is, you know, a topic that I can only speculate on. My book is is not going to answer this question. I don't know how, how it would. But something about this historical moment you know, brought a philosophy that had been so, so marginalized, more marginalized than neo-Nazism or fascism or, you know, what we think of as the classic marginalized political ideologies, more marginalized than that, suddenly it appears in the background at very, very high levels of power. And it, it is absolutely a bracing and arresting fact. So we've all heard about Steve Bannon, and I'm pretty sure that most people have never heard of Alexander Dugan or Olavo de Carvalho. Who are they, 
And how did you come to write about them? Um, I'll start with Alexander Dugan. He is exceptionally difficult to characterize or to put a simple label on. He is a Russian philosopher, writer, professor, journalist, diplomat, advisor, political advisor. He's all of those things. He probably, if forced to choose, he would call himself a philosopher and a writer. But he is a figure who has been operating in Russia for quite some time. He has a harrowing biography. And he has never held an official position, let's say, in Putin's circle. But first, initially, it was his books that made him influential. He wrote a text called Foundations of Geopolitics that was picked up and eventually became standard assigned reading for Russia's main military academy for training you know, generations of its military leaders, which, of course, is one of the you know, primary focal points of Russian government at large. And that text was all about how Russia, after the Soviet Union, could reemerge to assert itself on the global stage and regain its prominence. Very, very influential. It identifies the United States as its primary threat and offers a number of ways that the United States could be undermined and confronted and calls for Russia to essentially recapture the Soviet territories under the guise of Russia rather than the Soviet Union. But so Dugan, he was influential thanks to that book, but he is also a traditionalist. He's an occultist, in fact, and part of this cause for him to promote Russia was not just based on casual nationalism like we might think of, or patriotism. He sees Russia, in fact, his native country, as a tool, as as a means to a different end. He thinks that Russia can play a role in seeking to undermine modernity and Western modernity and liberalism, which he sees as being centered and emanating from the United States, the one major nation in his mind that was really forged in liberalism. And so alongside his commentary on geopolitics, he has been propagating you know, for a more conservative Russia. And his fame, his influence, his renown, especially among more conservative voices throughout the broader Soviet world, made him in demand. He, he participated in negotiations surrounding the peace of Chechnya after all of the conflicts that it had with Moscow. He was agitating in very, very bold ways for Russian action against Georgia during that war that took place. He agitated for war against Ukraine and and notably lost his university position for, in the minds of some interpreters, demanding a genocide of Ukrainians in parts parts of the country. And he also has ingratiated himself with Turkey and was negotiating at high levels when there were tensions between Turkey and Moscow some years back when a Russian jet was shot down by Turkish air forces. So he's moved in all these circles. His ideology is to try to oppose the United States and liberalism in all ways possible and to try and forge alliances to bring Eurasia, Central and Eastern Europe into the fold of Russia and against the European Union and against the United States. It's a long answer. No, I'm glad. Um, I'm glad. Thank you. But that's, those are the basics of him. Olavo is the other figure that, that is not going to be that well known to American listeners. He, too, has has a quite remarkable biography. He has been interested in alternative spiritualities and esotericism. He grew up in Sao Paulo in Brazil and spent a lot of time working in astrology, writing for, you know, for, for that brand of 
newspaper and publication, but he eventually discovered traditionalism, which is this philosophy we've been talking about but haven't quite quite described yet, and began attending uh, and was initiated into Sufi Muslim sects to practice it. Starts at Tariqa, a Sufi school in Sao Paulo, and eventually, from marriage, can believe it or not, works his way into journalism, becomes a very, very prominent social media figure, not always because of his esotericism, but more because of his politics. He was a fierce critic of mainstream politics, and especially of you know socialism and communism in Brazil. And he has a, a master of vulgarities. I, I don't think that he would blush to say, and, and his journalism became well-known just for its flair and for its teeth, essentially. He eventually found his way to collaboration with anti-establishment politicians in Brazil, and it so happened that one of those figures was Jair Bolsonaro, the current president, who offered, upon winning the presidency in Brazil, offered a position in the cabinet to Olavo. Olavo turned it down, but recommended other figures but consults with the president often and, and even is, you know, is so closely tied to the president and his sons that when Olavo had a very public feud with the vice president of the country, the president and his sons really led, as the campaign led more by his sons, took Olavo's side. And, you know, there's been widespread concern in Brazil's government, especially more among the civil servant sector, about Olavo's influence over the president. Um, he's a guru figure, essentially but he has no official position and it actually has, in some sense, you know, inoculated him against campaigns trying to limit him. So very, very, very prominent. I'll stop there because I've been talking for a while, but that's an introduction to these, these other two characters. Thank you so much for that. So now I would love for you to explain to the best of your ability this kind of murky world of traditionalism and how it has manifested on the political stage. And this is, as your question anticipates, this is no easy subject. If I, when I ask Steve Bannon what traditionalism is, for him, he says it is a rejection of the modern world and the claim that true culture is based on imminence and transcendence. And please, please define those terms in this context to the best of your ability as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not sure I can. I, I say that in part to give listeners a, a, an introduction into how vague this is and how unusual it is to discuss something like this in terms of politics. But, but let's, give it, let's give it a shot. Yeah. Um, traditionalism was not devised as a political ideology. It was devised as a spiritual, philosophical school. And in many instances, its original founders expressly, by definition, thought there was no reason to be involved in politics. And there are plenty of traditionalists today who feel the same. But one of its key features that eventually becomes important for politics is that it adopts from Hinduism and, and other Indo-European faiths the notion of cyclic time, the notion that instead of history having a beginning and an end, the notion that our past is irrevocably lost to us and that we are destined to push into new ages and new modes of existence, they believe that history is always cycling back to what was. More specifically, they see history divided up between four ages, that cycle, a golden, a silver, a bronze, and a dark before a cataclysmic event pushes you back into a golden age. And as those titles should, 
should let us know they think that as the cycle moves forward, things more broadly get worse, however you want to conceive that. That you move from golden to silver to bronze, whatever was once good is slowly lost, and the one salvation you can find is in times elapse and the trust that you will eventually go into a dark age, but the darkness itself means that an explosion of salvation is near. So that's one feature of this, and I think if if we start to ponder that, we might suspect right off the bat that this is not going to be a progressive political doctrine that comes out of this. It's not going to be a political doctrine that says human ingenuity, the mobilization of people and action here on Earth is going to make a better society than has ever existed, and that the past is a story of oppression and injustice, as, as a, lot of, a lot of people tend to think. And we're not going to yes, solve our way out of our current problems. No, not, not by innovation. It will instead be a return. That's how problems are solved, is, is to return to some virtue that already existed in the past. And the question, I, we're speaking in very vague terms, you know, what makes, we can ask now, though, is what makes the golden age golden and what makes the dark age dark? What is good and bad? What, what is it that gets worse? And traditionalists don't always have the same sense of what that is, but one thing that the more doctrinaire traditionalists on the right tend to see is that what was golden in the past was the prioritization of spirituality above materialism. And that is reflected in, in let's say, the Hindu caste hierarchy, where the upper, upper echelons, the upper castes of that hierarchy, the Brahmins are priests, and at the lower end you have merchants and slaves, people who traffic in material goods and money and, and eventually the most material of all things, the body. You know, so if you move from slaves, merchants, to warriors and priests in that, in that hierarchy, you actually see the way traditionalists also interpret the turning of the ages, that the golden age is the age of the priests. And they don't just see this as being a matter of style or identity. They think that in a, in a more virtuous world, you have something resembling a theocracy. It's one reason why Alexander Dugan, the Russian I was mentioning earlier, idolizes Iran today as a sort of society that, you know, that is closest to, to ideal. On the opposite end, the society that is focused on, let's say, bodies or masses or people is going to be something like communism or democracy. I should add also that this, this hierarchy, these oppositions also tend to involve quantity versus quality. That's the way a traditionalist would put it. So they see the growth of communism, the in, you know, increased attention to goods, the, the notion that politics these days typically discusses materialism, whether it's on the left or the right, if it's about you know, the freedom of ownership and property or the need to redistribute wealth in the name of, of equity and equality. They're all discussions about materialism still. So that's how they interpreted the one last thing before I turn this back over to you that I would say we want to know is that they also tend to see the turning of the ages as one that creates mass entities of people, mass communities and mass societies. Whereas in a, let's say, the golden era, you would have a priestly caste that would be distinct from other people in society. You would have hierarchy with rigid boundaries. You know, that was a hallmark then. Some traditionalists will also say it doesn't matter if there is vertical difference, if there's a hierarchy, but there could be something like a separate but equal, just uh, borders among people in the world. That could be ideal. In the Dark Age, all of those borders disappear. It is, an, it is an age of borderlessness, by definition, in masses of people. And therefore, 
any attempt to break apart mass entities and mass societies is good in their mind. And, and something like globalization or the European Union or the United States is going to be inherently troubled. Um, all three of these figures are strong nationalists, or they, they believe in independent nation-states, and they are very much against globalization. However, they also are, are strong advocates of, of this very destructive element that also underlies traditionalism, or their view that, that we need to wreak a, a kind of destruction upon our modern world to get us back to a pre-modern world. And that notion of pre-modern world, um, there doesn't seem to be any particular prescription for what that would look like or what what they're actually aspiring to other than some kind of strange, almost superficial, esoteric spirituality. Yes, I, I almost, I might even stop short of that because there is, in this theory, there is a big blank spot right there. I happen to feel that when I asked Steve Bannon, you know, what is traditionalism, and he, you know, he started to talk about what it champions, what it thinks is good, and he said, imminence and transcendence. I mean, I know that means something to, to some people, and, you know, it can be powerfully meaningful to some people, but it can also, and it does sometimes strike me as a sort of vapid statement, and if that is going to be the guiding principle for what we're going for, I can as well say, you don't know what we're going for. <laughs> um and we wouldn't want to fault them. You know, the, there's anti-modernism and pre-modernism is the thing a lot of people celebrate, but it's so far beyond the bounds of imagination for a lot of people today what an actual pre-modern society upbringing would look like that I come away from this, you know, when I hear them talk about a golden age, saying that, well, that, again, that part of this, that part of this philosophy and that part of this program is for the moment a blank spot. You know, there's a frame without a picture right there for what they're going for. The criticisms can be pointed and elaborate, but the actual description of what, what a more ideal society should look like is very, very vague. I'm not sure if that's comforting or discomforting to, to people as they listen to this. Right. But there's definitely a very strong disruptive element in the underlying philosophy of each of these three main figures as, well, we've definitely seen it with Steve Bannon in what he's been advocating in the Trump administration. We can see that in the policies of Jair Bolsonaro and Putin being in a position, in an underdog position, is great advantage in disrupting the world order as it stands right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. We can look at destruction in a, in a number of ways, of course. I mean, first, you know, as I mentioned, the traditionalists view with scorn what they see as, the, you know, the mass societies, and they see them as chaotic, in, in fact, such that, you know, the apparent chaos of destroying them is actually a move toward order. If you break down a society that's way too big and incomprehensible and in, put in its place, you know, smaller localized societies. They see that as a move from chaos to order. But they all you know, pursue this in different ways. They're all anti-globalists. Alexander Dugan, 
you know, part of the way he often expresses this is a will to create a multipolar world. He does want to see the growth of a Russian federation, although he he thinks that Russia would allow local communities and local distinctiveness to exist in the ways that the United States won't. He looks, you know, to the Caucasus area and Tatarstan as well for inspiration for that. But on the global level, he thinks that a strong Russia will break down U.S. hegemony in the world and thereby take that unipolar, that united, mass homogenized political rule and split it at least into two which is a move toward disintegration and therefore a move toward order, away from chaos. You know, Steve Bannon has worked against the European Union to see that mass entity break down into smaller units. He says he wants to deconstruct the administrative state of the United States government, and you know, to that end there's been support of states' rights, but also undermining a lot of the administrative facets of the U.S. government, putting people in positions of power, let's say, in the Environmental Protection Agency or Department of Education, who seem hostile to the entities themselves, so that they will wither. And then, of course, just the general destructiveness of Trump is seen as, you know, as as a good thing, a short-term fix to bring about the new order. So all of that is there. This role of destruction is there. They just recast it not as chaos for its own sake, but, but a sort of destruction to create new stability. And to bring us to a new golden age. Exactly. So these three characters and some of the others as well, some of the secondary characters in here, they are involved in this disintegration of the current order, but they're also at odds with each other, many of them. Steve Bannon and Alexander Dugan, in some very key ways, have diametrically opposite agendas. And what you mentioned about Dugan's idolization of Iran's theocracy, there's another character who has the opposite view. He's a traditionalist as well, but he wants to get rid of the theocracy there. So on, on the very basic level, they share the basic underlying philosophy, but on the surface, they often have very polar opposite agendas. Oh, absolutely. Going back to the uh, to our initial comments at the beginning of this interview, I mean, this is one reason why it doesn't quite seem like a Dan Brown novel to me. <laughs> right, there's no <laughs> coordinated... It, yeah, it doesn't quite work. They're close, and they're trying, but they don't agree on the details. And, you know, one place where this is, you know, potentially consequential is in attitudes toward China. Alexander Dugan... You know, is patronized by a Chinese university. He you know, has been spending a lot of his time in Shanghai and agitates for a union between Russia and China against the United States. He's also at various times called for a union between China, Russia, you know, Venezuela, and jihadi Islamic militants to push back against the U.S., all on the pretense that doing so will reverse modernity and stop its key ambassador in the world. Bannon looks at China and sees a communist-capitalist hybrid society that he believes is fueling globalization and globalism based on its low-paid workforce, a working army of slaves, and thinks that China is, in fact, unexpectedly the, you know, the true source of, of modernism and globalism in the world, and that if you stop China, the whole thing will fall apart. And so he has been reaching out to Dugan secretly, and I report on this in the book, to try 
try and convince Dugan to start propagating for closer ties between Russia and the West, now that the West has a you know a potentially anti-liberal leader in Trump. And his case for this has been based on traditionalism. It has this, it's been to say, don't you know, don't pay attention to our differences in matters of secular political values like democracy and human rights and things like that, constitutionalism. Instead, go back to our primordial roots, the fact that both our societies are, in his mind, quote, Judeo-Christian, and that we ought to instead see a new global order, a new geopolitics based on things that really matter about us, about our real identity. And if we think in those terms, Russia and the United States should be together and China should be isolated. That was his case. Dugan didn't buy it. Bannon has much more receptive audience with Olavo de Cavallo and the Brazilians in that case, who he's also wanting to see themselves identify more forcefully as part of the Judeo-Christian West and realign away from China, Russia, and India, which is where they, they had been aligned, and more toward the West, the United States, Europe, and Israel as well. So those are the types of battles that have gone on. We do have this figure, Giorgiani, who also was trying to lobby Bannon and thereafter Trump for a new policy toward Iran, a policy of regime change in Iran and thereafter a union, not of the Judeo-Christian West, but instead of the Indo-European world or the Aryan world, which would include Iran and Europe. So these are the sorts of distinctions and debates that can go on among these figures. So you were traveling all over the world interviewing these people over a period of a few years. What was it like for you being in the middle of this meteoric rise of traditionalist influence while all of this was happening and observing this sudden and simultaneous rise of these figures? Stressful, actually, if you'd like an honest answer. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm getting at what was it like for you inside as you're as you're observing this because you were like the fly on the wall except that you were actually directly engaged with each of these people in conversation asking them questions not necessarily that they would always be forthright with you but you were doing your best to to find out what what they were up to what was going on and all of that and so that's what makes this story so fascinating to find out from you you know, what you think is going on as well. Yeah, yeah, and of course, I mean, I can get to that latter large question at the end, but I mean, it, it's always difficult commenting on these topics, nationalism, immigration, racism, anti-liberalism, the populist movement around the world, because it's so personal for everyone around you. It's been so devastating and distressful to so many people in these countries. And at the same time, I also think that it has been misunderstood, not necessarily, you know, for the better or for worse, just, just mischaracterized. And it is extremely hard to navigate those questions to begin with. If you add into that people of power, you know, of, of real formal power, or who recently have power, or who want power and think they might potentially get it again in the near future, and what you're speaking to them about is something that they know is potentially incriminating and might take, you know, in Steve's case, I think if I had asked him, are you a white nationalist? Are you a neo-Nazi? I don't think he would have taken it that seriously. But when I asked him, are you a traditionalist? It really stopped him, arrested him in that, in that moment. All of the tension surrounding that, you know, the goals, the pitfalls, the offense, the dangers, it swarms around in ways I'd never experienced. And of course, I'm, I'll still be living with that as I'm promoting this book. So my first thought is, is it's extremely stressful. 
but it's very exciting too. You ask, you know, what does what does it all mean? What's the point of it? You know, it would be very dishonest of me to try and just throw out some simple, cheap response to that question. And I, I took the step in the book of not answering it with any firm, firm answer. But I do, I do see this this strange historical anomaly of these figures coming right now from different places, rising to similar positions of prominence in their in their societies. I do see it as a a symptom of something that we know about, namely that there's very widespread discontent with liberal democracy, with liberalism in general. And it comes from so many different perspectives. It's not just a right-wing discontent. There's a lot of protests. You're in Vermont. Bernie Sanders is by no means part of this circle, but there is a protest against a system that is so large and the flow of money and goods that is so large that it is incomprehensible and untouchable to average people, average working people. I think part of that bewilderment and part of that distaste is showing itself here among this this narrow, very powerful elite group of thinkers. So further than that, I, I, I'm kind of cautious to make any prognoses or, you know, or much, much more, but that's what I, that's what I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. Yes, you were saying that I got a kind of visualization of neoliberalism being caught in a squeeze between the far right and the left, both being very dissatisfied with neoliberal policies and what it's produced in the world. Yes, yeah. Say, so, you know, the ironies, of course, are, and there's, there's a lot of indication of this, that the anti-liberal populist right, of course, when it has come into power, it hasn't promoted an anti-neoliberal agenda. We heard a lot of economic politics, not just from Trump, but, but even from European nationalist parties, you know, that talked about a degree of protectionism, but also a sort of social safety net, so long as you were in the correct population, of course. But even that qualified and, you know, into some kind of devious notion of a social safety net and, and, and economic populism hasn't manifest. So there's this lingering question of whether or not the you know, this right-wing populism is just a tool for, for neoliberalism to perpetuate itself in an age where it's no longer popular. Yes, and this whole thing is just fraught with paradoxes and contradictions, and the tradition, the right-wing traditionalists seem to be at odds with basic Republican values and, and policies. So yes. there's that old saying that politics makes strange bedfellows, and now we have people who are in bed together who just don't seem to go together at all. Absolutely. You know, what we would see, let's say, between Bannon, Dugan, let's say, and and Mitch McConnell, or Paul Ryan, you know, the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal, is, you know, there's, there's a political alliance there of necessity that can exist under certain circumstances, it seems if they all aspire to having conservative judges on the Supreme Court of the United States, the differences among them don't necessarily need to become important. But they have entirely different notions about nationalism, about the importance of community to to retain goods, money, people, of individualism. You know, Bannon and traditionalism, in some sense, it's the, it's the antithesis of libertarianism the antithesis of the small government, individual free movement throughout the world vision. 
and also anti-capitalism as well. And anti-capitalism. And, Which is very you know, strange. Early versions of traditionalism were anti-Christian right. and anti-American. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's one thing that we may be seeing, and in in actually in the midst of our current crisis, the coronavirus, is that that fissure that exists latently within the political right could be highlighted, could be set ablaze in a new way, because we are seeing different brands of the right confront the issue of whether or not personal liberty takes precedence over collective safety and collective welfare. And, and indeed, thinkers on the right have split up on that, on that topic. So one wonders, it's waiting there. It's a latent divide. Mm-hmm. There's a cultural aspect of this as well, and you're a scholar of Nordic culture, and I'm curious what your take on the more recent fascination with Vikings and other pre-modern culture within mainstream media, you know, most notably through TV shows like Vikings and Game of Thrones. Yeah. I mean, you can compare it too. I mean, that's one piece of a larger body of fascination with, you know, with Scandinavia and with the Viking era. I mean, there's a lot to be said about that. You know, one thing that we've, we've noticed with, let's say, Scandinavian death metal or Viking metal has been that it, it does have pockets of interest in predominantly white sectors of society. Seattle and the Pacific Northwest is one. Also, that happens to have a lot of Scandinavian... Um, there's a, a lot of people with Scandinavian ancestry. So that's part of, a, part of an explanation is that, is that, you know, a lot of times in history we see people periodically wanting to exoticize themselves. But I am, you know, given my interests, I'm, I'm also very keen to look at the ways that revival of the Vikings feed into a contemporary problem. And, you know, rightly and wrongly, you know, the Vikings are often portrayed as sort of hyper-masculine, brutalistic figures. And also there's a sort of pre-modern society imagined in in a lot of these tales. I mean, the Vikings TV series from the History Channel is, is no exception. You know, but it's a series where, for the most part, men are men, women are women, and, you know, values of honor are always sought and, you know, maintained or lost, you know, where some of the qualities that past generation of men in particular, some of the qualities that they counted on to give them economic advance you know, if it was, if it was, you know, command over low-skilled labor or something like that, are suddenly recast as being the most important values and virtues that a society could ever have. So in those portrayals, I, I do think that there's the, the sort of crisis of American masculinity and, and youth masculinity as being dramatized and played out and visions of a different world are, are being shown there. Of course, then there comes a pushback and you know, there's there's been a lot of commentary in the wake of this revival, this most recent revival of Viking heritage. This happens, you know, quite quite often throughout history. But you know, challenging some of these portrayals of the Vikings, whether or not the gender divisions in Viking society were as rigid as more kind of reactionary recreators are are thinking that they were, and you know, and, and whether or not the Vikings were as Scandinavian as people think they they were. There's been, I think, you know, some of your listeners might know that, a tremendous amount of back and forth in attempts to revise the historical record on those features. But at the outset, this is, you know, this is partially what I see. It's, 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 a, 
it's a tribute to a Scandinavia that is quite distinct from the Scandinavia that exists today, in which I devoted also part of my research life to studying and following the hypermodern Scandinavia, the gender gender equal Scandinavia, progressive Scandinavia, secular Scandinavia. It's an antithesis to all of that. Right, and the the old notion of a male dominated patriarchal culture is yes. totally in line with the traditionalist philosophy which which appears to be founded or at least male dominated. Oh undoubtedly. I mean at least in its in its original forms, Julius Avila, who's you know, one of the first thinkers to carry traditionalism in you know, in the explicit direction of right wing politics. You know, he not only believed in time cycles and hierarchy and everything like that and you know, mass society versus local society. He also thought that, you know, a true priestly caste would not only be Aryan in race, but that would also be patriarchal and masculinist, not just populated by men, but, you know, populated by by a masculinism. And that the opposite end of the spectrum, the Dark Age, involves, you know, the feminization of the world and the disintegration of Aryan populations at the same time. So it's, you know, traditionalism in those in those early forms, it combines everything that that we often think of as distinguishing an old white patriarchy, you know, with the added element that it infuses them all with spiritual significance and puts them places them in an eschatology of decline. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So getting back a bit more in, towards politics, I'd love for you to talk about the concept of Donald Trump being a quote-unquote man in time and what that means and where that concept comes from. Yes, this is a, a big moment in the book. I thought so, at least. So Steve Bannon briefly, in an offhand comment, described Trump as a man in time to me. I spent a lot of time speaking to other colleagues, friends, family saying, is that a normal phrase? Would you say that? And and the reason I was curious is because man in time belongs to, that terminology belongs to the thinking of an extremely radical traditionalist or traditionalist adjacent thinker named Savitri Devi. She believed that the time cycle was not something that would necessarily propel itself. You know, it's almost a big circular train track, and there's only one way to go, but the train can stop, the train can putter along, or it can be rushed forward. And she believed that there were certain figures in history. They didn't need to know what they were doing, but but they were able to push that train forward. They were able to move society along through this time cycle, usually in a way that was beneficial, moving people back to a golden age. And because for her, time was destruction and more specifically, time was even violence and destruction. These men in time were men of violence and men of destruction. And their role was was simply to break down society as much as possible and in doing so push it forward on the time cycle. Steve mentioned that, you know, made that characterization of Trump to me, and it led me to keep pursuing it with him. He said that he knew of Savitri Devi. He would never quite let on to whether or not, you know, he had read deeply into it, but then he started to describe Trump as being a figure who who didn't seem to realize 
the importance of his actions and didn't seem to understand himself in history, but who was capable of disrupting and capable of destroying. And, you know, Steve said, frankly, he wished he would have disrupted and destroyed more. He caved to established interests a little too quickly. But what he was making was a characterization of Trump in this way, as being this man in time, as being this figure who could potentially destroy and by doing so push us forward and push us closer to a rebirth. So the title of the book is War for Eternity. What does that mean? Hmm. I tend for it to become apparent to the reader, hopefully somewhere in the middle of the book. But it's not that what they're advocating is a never-ending war, per se. It's rather a war on behalf of eternity and against progress, against the notion of time, against the notion of advance, for stasis, for archaic values that they think are never changing and that we can only hope to return to in the best of circumstances. And I hope it, I hope it disturbs as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of hard to wrap my mind around that. Because they, they, they believe in, in the cyclical process through, through the ages, and yet they're... Um, you could think of it this way. Think of that, that golden age that one is returning to as it always being gold. Society might move through you know, its various stages and phases, but what was good millennia ago is good today. Mm-hmm. And likewise, the person who understands what's going on and who realizes what was gold has, might effectively have pulled themselves out of time. So you can maintain that unchanging truth. So you can maintain a golden mindset or golden values even while you're going through the other ages. Yes, yes. Or at least be clear-eyed about what is golden and what is not. Right. Make an island unto yourself, in a sense. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. And, yes. This is one of the metaphors I use in the book. I refer to Julius Evola referred to this of riding a tiger, you know, confronting a world that is moving around and a beast that, that could destroy you, namely modernity, that the trick was to preserve yourself, even in isolation, while this world runs its course and while a lifetime is lived and death eventually comes to liberalism, that you could, uh, you can keep yourself safe if you are quiet inconspicuous and, and within the realms of yourself. A big part of traditionalist thinking throughout most of the decades that quite obviously, though, these thinkers don't think is necessary anymore. So do you have any final insights or lessons that, that we can gain out of, out of this whole story? Because we're not out of it, obviously. We're, we're smack in the middle of this, this very broad existential crisis, one that, mm. that is unfolding around us even without these traditional elements, and yet they're inserting themselves into the picture, accelerating the process, or, or at least trying to. So is, yeah. 
Is there something we can learn from this? Or If there is one practical takeaway, or a handful of them, it would be, I think it is so important to remain and allow ourselves to remain curious about political ideologies, and, it's, and that needs to be tempered against the fear of, of relativizing all ideas, but we need to keep learning. There's a real danger, I think, in seeing the political extremes and just putting a label that will excuse us from curiosity and from learning, whereafter it's entirely possible that something new comes about, not anticipated, not understood, that starts to change the world in ways we didn't anticipate. So the one thing I, I would really encourage people to do is to allow themselves to learn and to be attuned to when they excuse themselves from learning, because we all do it. We all do that, but it's, it's important not to, not to let that happen. And also, I think, to remember that right now on this stage, this part of the political spectrum on the right, there's a lot of ideological innovation going on. It might seem like the same old, same old, but sometimes the details matter. And that it might be equally important for other political perspectives competing with that one also to, to, to maintain that same limberness and, and sense of creativity and innovation. I don't think, and I'm speaking just as a private person, I don't think that a long-term future exists in a lot of the established political perspectives. I think innovation everywhere is going to be needed and, and for those who aren't part of, say, Steve Bannon's movement, it's a, it's a late start at this point, and there's there's catching up to do. So I think I'll leave it at that. Okay. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed the book, and I've been talking about it to people and, and highly recommending it. And um, I want to thank, thank you. you so much for your time, and I've enjoyed this conversation. And so my guest has been... Benjamin Teitelbaum. He's a professor of ethnomusicology and former head of the Nordic Studies Department at the University of Colorado at Boulder. He's been following and writing about the far right for nearly a decade, and his new book that we've been talking about is War for Eternity, Inside Steve Bannon's Far-Right Circle of Global Power Brokers. And again, Ben, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be on your show. And be well. You too. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Mystery Tour. Coming up next in a minute or two, something new from Erica Heilman from Rumble Strip, Vermont.
Welcome to Rumble Strip. This is Tristan. He got really drunk and recorded this for the show from Tasmania, where he lives and where he's living mostly in isolation like the rest of us. It's amazing. An entire planet of people living mostly in isolation or those of us lucky enough to be well. It's the darkest thing to happen in my lifetime, but also strangely the most unifying. We're all experiencing the very same thing at the same time, but not together, which is why I wanted to make this show. I asked you to send me recordings from where you are so we could make a show about all of us, and you did. And there are so many recordings and so many good ones from all over the world. There are too many to make just one show. So I'm going to just keep making this show, called Our Show, for as long as you want to send me your recordings from wherever you are in isolation. And we can keep each other company. Welcome. Are you lonesome tonight? Do you miss me tonight? Are you sorry we drifted? Yep, are you still there? Oh, wait on. Um, so I should say that I'm from Tasmania, which is this triangle-shaped island off the bottom of Australia, and a more miserable place I can barely imagine. A local historian, Henry Reynolds, wrote that you can hear the screaming in the wind. What seemed for the last 10,000 years like a massive disadvantage now seems like a massive bonus. We have a supersized moat cutting us off from the rest of the world. And we've pulled up the drawbridge and we're starving the crocodiles. And one of the best things about this is that Airbnb is no longer a thing. So I'm standing in um, our apartment in New York and it's on the fifth floor of this brownstone and across the way there are other buildings just like ours. I'm standing in, like looking out the window right now, trying to see if I can spot another human and I can't. (laughs) And I'm alone here. I haven't been alone for the past two weeks, my husband David was here. But after many discussions and crying and one and a half fight, <laughs> we decided that he should go to California to be with his mom. He's going to self-quarantine uh, for a week in an Airbnb before he goes to her house. And he bought a ticket this morning and... Um, you know, we were both crying as he was packing his bag because <laughs> who knows how long this thing will last. But it seemed like the right thing to do. And then as soon as he left, it was so silent here. There was just the sound of the fridge 
Let me walk to it so you can hear it. That's the sound of the fridge. And then there's the sound of the heater. We have one of those hysterical New York heaters, you know, that's always whistling and sighing and singing songs. And then he got to the airport and he called me and uh, both of us were like, wait, why are we doing this? And I didn't dare to say like, please just come home. We go to the beach. Who the f rides out an apocalypse alone? <laughs> when you are thinking of going to the wonderful life in the beach when you are in bed, you would always be respectful, kind, grateful to the beach. Don't drop any garbage. Don't drop. You can only be respectful to our earth and our earth is nice to us and lets us live on it. We go to the beach and enjoy surfing, um, going on boats, swimming. Jumping over waves. Little kids, they would love a special candy. <laughs> they would love peace. Stop la laughing. Just be in peace. <laughs> okay. Stop. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You're ruining this meditation. <laughs> okay, okay, hold on. Okay, I'm ready. Okay. It's good to get away to a peaceful place right now. There's, there's so much, so much strangeness, so much that's unsettled. But I'm not worried. I'm not concerned about myself. I'm not, I'm not worried about getting sick. I'm not worried about dying. They see, they Actually, I, I look at a. Bright hope in all of this. You can never, ever. I have, for some years now, felt like we are at the verge of a of a transformation of humanity. Our Earth can hold everything. Where we learn to live more authentically human. Our Earth. A Lakota word, I, I believe it's exercise. pronounced Matakyasam, all our relations. The idea of our deep connectedness to each other, to all that is, to everything, to nature. The beach is filled with seagulls. Nature is not somewhere we get away to. As I'm walking in this beautiful garden now. But nature is where we live. It's our home. This earth is our home. All of it. All of its creatures. We are the ones. Back one was when we met. I loved your first glance. You read your lines so cleverly and never missed a cue. 
than claim act two. You seem to change at a strange. And while I never know. Okay, so I have the girls. Honey, they're going to get together, and Catherine's going to teach them Oliver Twist this morning. Did they? They had to read something for that, right? They did. I believe they're doing the first 100 pages of Oliver Twist today. Okay. And then what, do you, what are you doing something this afternoon or what what's the plan? I'm not. Jeff is is working with their jazz combo uh, and they're doing it outside. Nice. For safety's sake. Yeah. Um yep, they're going to have to bring their music stands yeah, I saw it. What is it? The Hollywood Tower Hotel. Oh. So what have you been? What have you been doing? What have I been doing? Yeah. Drawing this magnificent Tower of Terror ride mod on the mirror. Are you bored staying it now that school's closed? Yeah. What are you doing to pass the time? Work on drawing the Tower of Terror model on the mirror. What else did we do? What did we do today? What assignment for school? Music, March Music Madness. So we watched and listened to what? Um, End of the Road by Voice Men. Straight up. By Deja Vu. Paula. Paula. Abdul. Paula Abdul. And you had to talk about why you like certain songs. Yeah, and we also listened to Dreams by Van Halen. Hmm. What did mom record for you the other day, yesterday, when she opened the window? A bird um, tweeting. What kind of bird? A cardinal. You want to say something to uh, Erica? She's she makes podcasts. If we were going to send this to her, what would you say to her? If she was in, at home. Um, how are you doing? We had a fight just before. This outbreak started to get serious. I knew it was serious. But, you know it was serious. But, but because Gary grew up, grew up with a very overbearing mother who worked in the ER, no, um, turned him into a hypochondriac. And in her job, you know, the news was starting to really come in about it, and he came home. With and his, I heroically came home with, with some two, Clorox, two things of Clorox wipes. Two containers of Clorox wipes. Is your heart filled with pain? Shall I come back again? Tell me, dear, you're lonesome
In this show, you heard Tristan from Tasmania, Helena de Groot in New York City, Callie from Florida and her friend Carrie from Durham, North Carolina, Clark from Atlanta, Georgia, Tom and his son Liam in Columbus, Ohio, and Deb and Gary from Montpelier, Vermont. So that's the first installment of our show. I hope that you're well, and um, I will be back soon with another show. This is Erica Heilman. Thanks a lot for listening. Special thanks to my friend Erica Heilman for permission to share this with all of you here on the Magical Mystery Tour. And thank you all so much for listening. Until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. <laughs>